Good morning. Let's stand together as we worship the Lord through song, singing out a great hymn, Across the Land. Let's sing this out together. You're the Word of God, the Father, from before the world began. Every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. All creation holds together by the Great singing this morning. You can be seated. Good morning, and welcome to First Baptist Church of Wilson. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Here are a few upcoming events to help you stay connected. There will be a ladies' Christmas party in the cafe on December 2nd from 10 a.m. to noon. Please bring a brunch-themed dish to share and a $10 wrapped gift for the gift exchange. If you have any questions, please see Rachel Lovegrove. Our annual Christmas at FBC program is coming up on Sunday, December 17th at 10.45 a.m. This is a special time of music and videos as we worship our Savior and celebrate His birth together. Plan to be here for this event and bring someone to enjoy it with you. In just a few minutes, we will be dismissing children four years through the third grade out the back of the auditorium to our junior church ministry. While there, they will enjoy a great time as they sing songs, play games, and hear a message from God's Word prepared just for them. Giving is one of the many ways we have to worship the Lord. If you'd like to give financially, you can utilize the giving box in the back of the auditorium, or you can give online at fbcwixom.org and click at the tab at the top of the page. 
If this is your first time at FBC, we would love to connect with you. If you'd like more information about FBC, prayer, or to learn how you can get involved, you can fill out a connection card online at fbcwixen.org forward slash connect. Also, make sure to stop by the Welcome Center for a special gift on your way out after the service. Once again, thank you for joining us for worship today. And we invite you to worship the Lord through song as we prepare to hear from God's Word this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Good to have the church family back together again this morning for worship. It's hard to believe we're just three weeks away. Three weeks away from Christmas at FBC. And of course, um, I, don't, I don't think inviting others to join you from church for church service is the best way to witness, but it's a really easy way to share the gospel with someone. And December 17th, that service, just a lot of music and uh, video and then a gospel presentation as well. And uh, you won't want to miss it, but it's an easy way to share the gospel with others as well. So please invite your neighbors and friends to join us on that day. Special service at our regular time, 1045 on December the 17th. Operation Christmas Child was a success again this year. And um, Angie Snyder is going to come at this time and share a little report from Operation Christmas Child. Thank you to everybody who participated this year. Angie? As part of the Operation Christmas Child ministry team, we would like to update the church and the school on this year's shoebox collection. May I direct your attention to the TV screen? As you can see, there were 337 shoeboxes collected and dropped off at the collection site this year. We are blessed to have a church family and a school that, is, that so generously participates in the shoebox collection, as well as the financial support to ship the shoeboxes. As a team, it is our hope that we have some type of shoebox item collection um, throughout the school year, and then a packing party sometime in late summer or early fall. There will be more details to follow. When we get an update from Samaritan's Purse in January, we will um, share a map of where the shoeboxes were delivered. We also were reminded of Acts 20.35, where Paul reminds the early church of the Lord Jesus' words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. We are so blessed by this church and the school. Thank you for helping spread the gospel message with the shoebox. Thank you, Angie, and thank you, Emily and Brian and others who have helped with that endeavor. And remember, every one of those boxes goes with a gospel and a Bible study for those kids to work on together with a local church. And so praise God for that opportunity to share Jesus around the world. Brian, yes, sir. Three hundred and thirty-seven. Awesome. Thank you. That's wonderful. All right. Well, we're happy to have you here today. Looking forward to a great time together as we study the Word of God and as we celebrate communion. Uh, Today we're celebrating communion because the message that Holden is bringing this morning from Psalm 133 is that our God is the unifier. It's a beautiful thing. Psalm tells us 
when brethren dwell together in unity. And it's a beautiful thing when believers get together and worship Jesus. And so we're happy to have you here with us this morning. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we're grateful that we can come together in Jesus' name to sing these songs of praise, to, to give together, to pray together, to encourage one another, to hear your word preached Lord, we ask that today we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers of your word, that this church would be unified. Lord, we know that Satan hates the unity of the body of believers and fights against it. Lord, would you help us today to contribute to unity rather than division? May you be glorified in how we respond to your word and how we fellowship together closely with one another through communion. Thank you for this time of worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord through song. Let's stand together as we sing out a great hymn, Complete in Thee. Complete in Thee, O Word of mine, may take dear Lord the place of thine, my God and God. privilege it is to know Christ and to be able to worship him together. And that's the emphasis that we're going to see today is God is the unifier. I want to read a verse and passage before we sing our next song. And it's found in Psalm 150. And if you read through the psalm, it emphasizes a phrase that's found throughout. And it's praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's what we need to be doing, right? I think we would all agree with that. He's worth praising. And then it concludes with this phrase, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And just in case you didn't get it, praise the Lord. I want you to listen as we sing this song, praise the Lord. We'll sing the first and the chorus and we'll have you guys join us on the second verse. You made the starry hopes, you 
awesome. God is our living hope. Thanksgiving brings with it a lot of good things, but I think we can all agree, most importantly, it's football. At least uh, that is usually for me. In fact, if you watched a lot of football this week, really, and you had an opportunity to from Thursday on, there were a lot of games. You probably saw a few commercials, and there were a few commercials that I have to admit were pretty good. One of them was for Walmart Plus, and they were making an interesting argument about why Walmart Plus or things like Amazon Prime are a good investment. It's because it saves you time. In fact, the comedian that was presenting Walmart Plus made this point. It saves you time so that you can spend it with your family or people you actually like. Now, I hope that's not true of your family. It certainly is not true of my family. However, unfortunately, I think this comedian was on to something because the reality is that most things in the world tend towards disunity. They tend towards division. They don't tend towards unity in good things, but they tend towards conflict. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 1, verses 29 through 31, that this kind of behavior is really the outcome of sin. It's the end result of a sinful life. For example, Paul uses words like unrighteousness, strife, hostility, malice, envy, murder. This is the natural thing that the world is going towards. And in fact, if we look at our greater culture, we see this happening. It seems like families, communities, churches, nations are dividing more and more. In fact, statistics tell us that there is more division present in our world today than there has been in recent memory. But I have good news for you today. Because that is true of the world. That is not true of people filled with the Holy Spirit. People who are following after Jesus, who are in Jesus' power. The good news today is that through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, and through the power that he has given us, we can be different from the world around us. We can instead have unity. Today we're going to talk about how we can have unity with our families, unity with our church, and unity with Jesus Christ. These things are awesome blessings that God has given us. Now to discuss this, we're going to look at two places in our Bible. The first is Psalm 133. That's where we're going to start today. It's a very brief psalm. You'll see that when you get there. We're also, if you want to keep your fingers in two places in your Bible, we're also going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 quite extensively this morning. But I want to begin with Psalm 133. This is what Psalm 133 says. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity this morning to study your word, to think about the truth of Scripture. This morning, Lord, I pray after you, as you prayed for your disciples, Lord, let us in this building be one with you. Let us also be one with one another. Let us strive for unity so that we can go into the world and we can actually show you to our community, to the people around us, Lord, let our unity together 
be something that points to our unity in you and that ultimately brings people to know you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity today to think about unity, fill us with the Holy Spirit as we strive to understand how to implement it in our lives. We ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Today we are talking about God as the unifier, and we're talking about the biblical concept of unity. Now this is a really important idea and something that God spends quite a bit of time talking about, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. The word unity is, of course, a variation of the word one, both in English and in Greek. It's one. That's what unity is. It's taking many and making them as one. The word in Hebrew has a very similar meaning. It literally means togetherness or side by side. That's the idea that Psalm 133 is going after. Now, before we can talk about achieving unity, we have to understand a few things about it. And to do that, we're primarily going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 this morning to understand a biblical idea of unity. Psalm 133 is talking about the blessings of unity, and it does have blessings, and we're going to conclude there. But it doesn't really give us any instructions on how to have unity. And so that's where Ephesians 4 is really going to come in to this discussion. We're really going to focus on the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 to understand how to have unity. And then we'll talk about the many blessings that God gives to us through unity. Let's begin in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is the first thing that Paul has to say in the real core argument of the book of Ephesians. The entire book of Ephesians is really building to this point about unity. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Eventually, and we'll talk about this verse in a moment, he says, unity. But let's talk about this first. The first thing we need to understand about unity is that people that are unified have to have a common purpose. They have to have a common goal. Without a common goal, we cannot be unified. I think the best example that I could think of about this is the most famous conflict in history, which is, of course, World War II. World War II actually perfectly provides a good example of unity, and it also provides a great example of disunity. The disunified side is the Axis powers, the Nazis, the Japanese, the Italians, and an important group to remember the Soviet Union at the beginning of the war were disunified. In fact, something that characterizes them is constant backstabbing and betraying of one another. You're probably familiar, of course, with the German invasion of the Soviet Union, betraying an alliance that had allowed Hitler to start the war. This is disunity in action. Everyone wanted what was best for them, and they were absolutely willing to stab each other in the back to achieve what they thought was best. They couldn't communicate, they didn't trust each other, and they certainly did not work well together. Contrast that to the Allies, specifically the United States and England. While, of course, the United States did not immediately enter into the war, there was one thing that was absolutely always true. The United States and the British Empire were always aligned in their goals. They were firmly against tyranny and dictatorship, and they would do whatever it took to defeat their dictator opponents. 
there was never any concern by either the United States or Great Britain that their purposes were mixed. There was never any concern that one would betray the other, and so they could work in total cooperation. They exchanged things as sensitive as the secrets of nuclear energy and things as sensitive as detailed intelligence. They had unity and purpose, and this is one of the many reasons why at the end of the conflict it was the allies that won the war. This is the kind of unity that we ought to have as believers. And here's the awesome thing. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a unified purpose with everyone else in this room, and that is to accomplish the goal of sharing Jesus. The Great Commission tells us that we are to go and we are to share the gospel with all people and to disciple people into following Jesus. Now, that is the first step in unity, but it's not the only thing required for unity. We also need agreement in action. The kind of behaviors that we demonstrate must also be present. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, "...with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." This is so important that we are going to come back to those four things that Paul listed. Those are really the applications of how to achieve unity. So we are going to come back to them. But for the moment, I just want to encourage you to think about the idea of unity in action. This is believers doing the same things to accomplish the same mission. This is like the astronauts, especially the original astronaut program. If you read over the requirements for these guys to have these jobs, they are remarkably similar. For example, they all had to have the same type of degrees. Science and engineering degrees were required. They all had to be military test pilots. They all had to have 1,500 hours flying military aircraft. They had to be younger than 35 years, and they had to be under 6 feet tall. The reason for this was when they were up in space, if something went wrong, every single one of them had to be able to fulfill whatever role was necessary. Now, this is not to say that these guys were identical. All of them had different small variations in skill set, as do all Christians. But we all require the same actions to be unified. The same four things, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, must be true of all Christians if we are going to achieve unity. Now, the rest of our time today, until we talk about the benefits, I want to spend understanding how we can achieve this. And I think we need three things to do this. Number one, we need to follow someone. And of course, Jesus Christ and God is our model for how to achieve unity. Number two, we need to unify with the correct people. Who does God say we ought to have unity with? And number three, are we unifying in the right way? And that's going to bring us back to Ephesians 4, 2 and those specific things that Paul laid out. But let's start with how God models unity. God, of course, Jesus specifically, is our great model on how to live. 1 Corinthians 11:1 1 reminds us to imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. Jesus is the model for everything that we want to do. And that, of course, includes unity. God models unity in multiple ways that we can observe and see evidence of. Ephesians 4 actually gives us one of these, and that is that God models unity in the Trinity. Remember that God is not just Jesus, but he's God the Father and he's the Holy Spirit. These three together are God, but they work in perfect harmony, in perfect unity to accomplish 
their goals. Jesus is constantly showing what unity looks like by deferring to the Father, by sending the Spirit to us to accomplish his goals. In fact, John 14 and John 16, he actually says, it's better for me to go so the Spirit can come so that you can accomplish what you need to accomplish. It's a model of unity. Number two, Jesus and God give us a model of unity in the truth of Scripture. The Bible is a beautifully unified document. It's 66 books written by 40 human authors, more than 1,000 chapters, more than 30,000 verses, and it works in perfect unity, building on itself, reinforcing itself, pointing us towards truth, because it is truth. It's a unified truth. It's a picture of of unity. God is a God of unity. Finally, the natural world, which the psalmist actually mentions specifically in verse 3 when he talks about the dew in Hermon and the dew on Mount Zion or the mountains of Zion, the natural world is also a demonstration of the kind of unity that God strives for. Things in nature work together in an amazing and unbelievable way. In fact, I firmly believe if you study any animal for long enough, you will come away with a complete overwhelming understanding of how unified the animal is. I go on hikes with Eric Hutton. He's always telling me about some new biological feature, it's not actually new, that a deer has that works perfectly with all the other features that God gave deer to make them more and more interesting animals. God has unified the natural world. Again, all of these are pictures of the kind of unity he wants us to have with each other. That brings us to who we should unify with. Psalm 133, along with Ephesians 4, I think both point us to the two major groups that God has in mind. The first is actually our families. This is the first point that Psalm 133 makes. It says how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now, the word here really is brothers, but of course, this is not just inclusive of those of us who have brothers. I do have a brother, but perhaps you don't. This is not just brothers. It's really broader than that, and it's family. The law, if you were to study Exodus through Deuteronomy, constantly talks about God's understanding of this and what God wants, and it's brothers who dwell in harmony. In fact, there's dozens of laws that specifically govern how family members relate to one another so that unity can be achieved. By the way, this is countercultural. If we look at mythology, if we look at history, the normal relationship between siblings is hostile. In fact, almost all other cultures around the Israelites had myths already of brothers killing each other and brothers fighting. And even, unfortunately, in Israel's history, Cain and Abel killed each other. But God's model is not that. It's family dwelling in unity together. Now, we're going to talk more about this in the application section, but I do want to mention that don't be discouraged if perhaps for you this morning, family unity is not what you want it to be. The world naturally tends towards disunity in family, but I want to encourage you this morning, if you have the Holy Spirit, which you have if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can begin to change that. You can, by following Scripture's teachings, be the key to unity in your family. Change is possible through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, the next place that we see unity 
is the covenant community. Now, this is an area where the New Testament and the Old Testament are slightly different. They're not contradictory, of course, but they do focus on different things. Psalm 133 is talking primarily about the Jewish priesthood and their community with one another. This is why it's talking about Aaron and the sweet fragrances that are dripping down upon Aaron. But Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews change our understanding of what it means to be part of a covenant community. It tells us as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we are to be unified with our local church. So for the Israelites, it was more to be unified around their religious beliefs. For us, it's to be unified in our churches. And we'll talk about how that's possible in just a moment. Now, with all of that out of the way, what I want to spend the most time on out of Ephesians 4 is how do we achieve unity? How do we do this? Because it's going to take some work and it's going to require us to implement some Christ-like behavior with the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.15 tells us this, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him that being Jesus, in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Jesus is the model of the things that I'm about to talk to you about. John 14, John 16, and Ephesians 4, 4 tell us that endeavoring to keep the unity, we have to have the spirit and the bond of peace because there is one body and one spirit. The things we're about to talk about cannot be done if we're not looking at Jesus and we're not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. That brings us back to Ephesians 4.2. We see four things that Paul encourages us to do that are going to bring about unity. There are probably more things than this, but these are the four core ideas that Paul wants to talk about. And so it's what I want to talk about this morning as we seek to be unified. The first is humility. And by the way, all of these are going to run counter to what the world suggests we do. And remember, the world's natural state is disunity. They're constantly dividing. These things are going to be different from what we see encouraged all around us. The first thing is humility. Humility is one of the most challenging things that the Bible asks us to do because it is completely against what we naturally want to do, which is to be selfish. Humility is really the opposite of selfishness. Selfishness says, I want what's best for me, me, me and humility says i want what's best for you 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 jesus of course is the ultimate example of humility philippians 2 jesus gives up his position in heaven and humbles himself as a servant so that he can accomplish our salvation he was entitled to everything he is the god of the universe and yet he was willing to live with us and to put up with us, and he demonstrated humility. When it comes to achieving unity in your family and in our church, we must be humble. We must put others above us. That's challenging, but it's crucial. Next, we must be gentle. This is one of those words in Scripture that is a little bit challenging to think through because gentle to us isn't really an action. It's more of a description. If someone's gentle, uh, perhaps that means that they're soft or they're soft-spoken or they're nice. But this is a word that can be implemented, and it's something that we need to understand. It's really the idea of being less harsh than people deserve. Perhaps you went shopping this week. 
Friday, perhaps, and you experienced some people on the road that maybe weren't supposed to be there or were in some places they weren't supposed to be. And if you're anything like me, your first reaction is perhaps to lay on the horn, to say, what are you doing there? You really need to learn how to drive. Gentleness is the opposite of that. They might be doing something wrong, but it's not a harsh reaction. It is a gentle reaction reaction. It is not treating people the way they deserve to be treated. It's similar, although not identical, to the concept of mercy. And this must exist in a unified community. Not only is it saying that you are more important than me, but it's also saying when you make mistakes, I'm not going to be harsh, but I'm going to be gentle. It doesn't say allow mistakes. That's not the point. It's not allowing sin, for example, but it's being not harsh, but gentle when mistakes are made in your community. Be kind when people are making mistakes because we live in a sinful world and we are all sinners. We must be gentle with one another, not harsh to achieve unity. Next is patience. This is, again, something that Jesus demonstrated and that we as humans really, really struggle with. Patience, again, runs counter to our natural, selfish inclinations. Paul and the other apostles actually invented a word. They took a Greek word that meant patience, and they actually made it more intense. It's actually mega-patience, and it's the only word they use for patience in the New Testament because it's such an important idea, and it's so different from what the world teaches. It's not what we see from others. Jesus was willing to put up with mistake after mistake. And aren't you glad he did? Because if all of us had to be perfect to be loved by God, none of us would succeed. In fact, we wouldn't even come close. Jesus is patient with us. He waits on us as we struggle and as we grow in him. And that must be true in a unified community. The final word, again, is another one that's a little bit challenging to think through from what we see in Scripture. It literally says to forbear or to bear with one another. Really, this is the idea of being supportive. Literally, it means to come alongside someone and pick them up. We have an example of this with Moses and his arms being lifted in the Old Testament. But this is really a combination of patience and helpfulness. And when it comes to unity, this is so crucial. It's not just putting others first. It's not just not reacting harshly to them or being patient with them. But it's actually taking the next step and helping them when they need help. That's what forbearing with someone is. It's patiently supporting and helping people who are in need. This is Christ-like behavior. Jesus demonstrates this again and again, not only of physical needs where he heals people or he feeds people, but he also demonstrates this again and again spiritually. He bears people up when they need it. He gives them the support and the love that they need. Now, these are Paul's instructions on how to be unified. And that lets us go back finally to Psalm 133 and talk about the benefits or the blessings that unification can bring. Now, David explains unity by giving a a metaphor really that is as relevant to us as it was to him. In verse 2, he talks about the unity of brothers is just as good as a sweet-smelling fragrance 
on the head that drips down into the beard. Now, some of you in here, like me, have beards, and that's excellent, okay? You perhaps have put something that smells nice in your beard like this guy is doing. But really, this is actually a far more universal thing than just people with beards. This is perfume. This is cologne. This is anything that makes us smell nice. David is saying that unity is like an amazing fragrance. It's constantly obvious, and it just enhances everything about the experience. Now, we have unity visible in this passage in a few ways. Number one, unity in the family. This is not just the end goal, but it's also part of the blessing that God makes possible. With the instructions that Paul gives us with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can enjoy the blessing of unity in your family. And it really is a blessing. And it's important to think of it that way because sometimes we don't have it and we have to rely on God to bring it back. But if we follow these principles, it can be achieved. For me, I got a great illustration of this when my brother was home from college this past week. It was really a blessing to have him around. He didn't necessarily change all that much of the normal things that were going on in our lives, but it was pleasant to have him there. Having a unified family is really one of the biggest blessings that anyone can have. But again, I want to encourage you, if that's not the case for you, if you are not enjoying unity in your family this morning, it's okay. These principles that the Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit enables, can lead to unity. It is a blessing from God, but if we live out what the Spirit has given us, you can achieve unity in your family. I firmly believe that Christ-like action and biblical living will lead to a restored relationship. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel like I'm not enjoying this blessing, it can be yours if you follow the truths of Scripture. Number two... We want to have unity in your church. This is that covenant community that David is talking about in verse 2. You can enjoy the blessing of unity in your church. Now, the early church really got this and actually connected family and church, I think, a little bit better than we do. In fact, there's still some holdover. If you've ever been called brother or sister by people in the church, this is an illustration of the kind of close unity that the church is supposed to have. It's why they called each other by these familial names. But the church, just like any family, sometimes can have some tension that appears. We are, after all, all sinners still in this room. We still have issues that we're working through, behavior that we need to become more Christ-like in. So being part of a church does not mean that it's easy to achieve unity. I want to commend you because this church, on a regular basis, has demonstrated great unity. However, it's a fragile thing. It must be striven for. It must be something that we pursue. And how do we pursue it? By, as Paul teaches us, being humble, by being gentle, by being patient, by being supportive to one another. We must constantly do this. In fact, if we don't, then we are at risk of losing our unity as a church community. And as Jesus says in John 17, our unity as believers is actually one of the best ways that we can show Jesus to the world. 
By the way, in just a few minutes, we are actually going to have a very, very tangible demonstration of this in communion. Communion is, of course, first and foremost about your relationship with Jesus. It is a direct representation of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He died, he shed his blood to cover your sins so that you can, if you put your faith in him, enjoy a restored relationship with God. But it also actually makes you one with Jesus Christ. He takes his righteousness and he puts it on you. And the Father views you the same way that he views Jesus when it comes to your eligibility to be with him. Communion is about unity between you and Christ, but it's also about unity between you and other believers. This is the reason that we reflect while we spend time thinking through our behavior and the things that we have done so that we can grow in our unity in the church. It's a time to reflect. It's a time to think, is there anything I need to do to enhance the unity of the church? Do I need to go and confess something to my brother? Do I need to go apologize? Have I been acting humbly and gently and patient and in a supportive manner to those around us? This is part of what communion is. And it's in the name. Communion is related to the word community. It's part of this process. And originally in the early church, it was like a family meal. It's an important idea to remember. Finally, there's one last part of Psalm 133 I haven't talked about yet, but it's super important and crucial. And it's the very last line because the psalmist says that as a result of unity, you actually can enjoy another blessing, specifically the blessing of life forevermore or eternal life. Now, how is this possible? Certainly, unity is an awesome thing, but what does it have to do with eternal life? Well, let me give you two thoughts related to that. Number one, the world divides, and it's only through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that we can achieve true unity, which actually leads us to a logical progression. If you have unity... You have the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so if you have unity, you are a believer in Jesus. And so, of course, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life. But again, John 17, part of the prayer which I opened our message today with is Jesus saying that the unity of believers actually shows Jesus and the Father to the people that see the unified followers of Jesus Christ. Your unity literally points others to eternal life. And this is just one more reason why we as a church should strive for unity. Not only is it good and pleasant, as the psalmist says, but it actually points people towards Jesus. I want to conclude this morning with talking about why this psalm was written. This psalm is titled as a psalm of David. And this really leads us to two possible options on who David was talking about here when he was talking about his brothers. One of the options, of course, is his biological brothers. But when we look through our Old Testament, we don't necessarily find a great relationship between David and his brothers. Perhaps he had one. It's just not listed. But I will tell you who had an exceptionally close and unified relationship with David that I suspect this psalm is about, and that is Jonathan. Jonathan and David were inseparably close. In fact, they are famous for the closeness of their bond. And normally we're used to thinking about David and following after perhaps what David did in many areas. Of course, David was not perfect. But this morning I want you to think about Jonathan. 
Jonathan, remember, was next in line for the throne. In fact, from a worldly standpoint, he had every reason to disunify with David, to oppose David, to selfishly say, I want to be king. I am going to cast away David. Certainly, that is what Saul had done. And yet Jonathan reacts completely differently. Number one, he acts humbly. He puts David above himself. He does not react harshly to the news that David will actually take the throne rather than him. He's patient and actually maintains a relationship with David for years, despite the strife between his father and David. And he supports David to the absolute best of his ability. I strongly suspect, although there's no proof in Scripture, that this psalm of David was made in memory or made with the thinking about how Jonathan had acted in David's relationship. And so I want to encourage you this morning, model Jonathan's unity with his brother-in-law, David. Let that be true of our relationships and let that be true of our church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather around your word, to consider the unity that you have called us to in Ephesians. And we also ask, Lord, for the blessings of unity that you describe in Psalm 133. Help us to be unified with our families. Help us to be unified here in our church community. Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Help us to fulfill these actions, to implement these things that are required to have unity in our lives. We ask this in the name of our model, Jesus. Amen. Now, we have an opportunity this morning, again, as I mentioned, to reflect on unity as we prepare ourselves for communion. Communion, as I mentioned, is a time for reflection. It's a time for calling on God to help us. The reason that we take the time to spread the, the elements is so that we can take some time to reflect. So I want to encourage you this morning, ask for God's help in striving for unity in our church specifically. Confess sins, but also ask for help. Is there a challenge to unity going on that you're aware of? Ask for God's help. Ask for those four things. For God's patience and his gentleness and his forbearance. Ask for those things this morning. Because communion, remember, is a reminder that we are one with Christ and one with one another.
The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.